The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Give attention this morning to the first ten verses of Luke, chapter 7. Luke writes the following. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy of you to do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. When Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you. We, we marvel at who you are and what you've done on our behalf. And we humble ourselves before you and before your word this morning, asking you to teach us through it. And as we give attention to this little glimpse of your life, this simple episode that took place in Capernaum during your earthly ministry, that you would illuminate before our eyes what faith looks like, that you would implant that kind of a faith into our hearts, that we would leave here loving you, that we would leave here trusting you fully for salvation and for all things. For you alone, our Savior and Lord. You are our hope. You are our trust. You are our everything. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. As we turn our attention from the Sermon on the Mount, Luke shifts us from the preached message of Jesus back to the ministry of Christ. And he begins once again to narrate for us events that took place. You may recall that Luke is, is writing this whole gospel we saw back in chapter 1 at the very beginning. He's writing this to a, a man uh, who is a Gentile who is struggling in his faith. He's wavering in his faith. He's, he's doubting his faith. A man named Theophilus. 
And Luke writes his entire gospel, and he orders everything that he includes here about the life and ministry and words of Jesus toward that end. He is writing to bolster this man's faith, to remind him that faith in Jesus is wise, that faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. To strengthen his faith. And so there's a sense in which the whole gospel is about faith and why it should be in Jesus and why that's the only reasonable and logical and wise thing for a man or a woman to do. And so it doesn't surprise us as we work our way through both the words of Jesus and the narratives that Luke tends to include in his gospel that faith becomes a central feature, that faith becomes a central issue, that he wants to illuminate what faith looks like so that we can see it clearly and so we can examine our own hearts and see if true faith exists there. And so immediately following his, his sort of synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount, he takes us to Capernaum, which is apparently where Jesus went next, and he introduces us to a man who otherwise would have been lost in history. We'll find out later he's a Roman soldier. But there were many Roman soldiers in that day, and there were many before him and many after him, and he would have been lost in, in just the annals of history had this event not taken place and had Luke and Matthew not recorded it for us. But this is a man who astonishes Jesus. It's not easy to astonish Jesus. There are very few people in the record of Scripture that astonish him or amaze him. But this man does. He encounters in this man something unlike anything he's seen thus far in his ministry. He, he's, been, he's been ministering for some time now. He's been teaching. He's been doing things. But what he encounters in this particular man is unlike anything else he's seen. It's a faith unlike anything he's seen. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we get a sort of a, a, a biblical definition of faith. The writer of Hebrews says this, Faith is being assured of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's a simplified definition of Hebrews, excuse me, of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The whole chapter in Hebrews 11 is about faith, and the writer of Hebrews goes on to illuminate that definition and sort of give color to it. He goes on to, to define faith by examples in the lives of people who have displayed it and the results of that faith in their lives. He, he talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. He talks about people like Rahab and, and many others. And, and, he, and he shows the events of their life and the results of the events of their life to sort of illuminate what faith looks like. You can study that chapter on your own and get a good picture of what faith is or what it looks like. But if we were to summarize the definition of what faith is from Hebrews chapter 11, I would submit to you it would be something like this, that faith is a reliance upon a God who's known to be trustworthy, which enables a believer to treat the future as the present and the invisible as seen. We see that in the examples that were given in Hebrews 11. Men and women who, who rely upon God, who they know to be trustworthy, and that, that reliance upon him and his trustworthiness allows them to be able to act as though the future is certain as the present. And the things that are invisible, things that they cannot see and sense with their, with their senses are just as real and just as true as the things that are seen. 
course, the Bible has a lot to say about faith. It tells us that faith is an essential vehicle of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Very familiar passage. For it is by grace that you've been saved through what? Through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's, a, it's the gift of God. And salvation comes to us by grace through faith. It's impossible to be saved apart from faith. Hebrews chapter 11, again, verse 6, tells us this. Without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So faith is essential for salvation, and, and without it, it's impossible to please God. So it's an important issue. It's an important thing to understand and to have a clear picture of and to ask ourselves, do we possess it? This simple narrative Luke presents to us a man who has amazing faith. It's a real-life event that really took place, and it's a, a faith that Jesus publicly commends. Again, I, I don't, I'm not aware of anywhere else in the text of Scripture where Jesus publicly commends someone's faith like this. He chastises the Jews quite regularly for their lack of faith, he says to his disciples on more than one occasion, you are men of very little faith. But this man's faith impresses Jesus. He publicly commends it and he rewards it. So what is it about this man's faith that's so amazing? What is it about this man's faith that is so unique and so different than anything else Jesus has seen. That's the question that we want to ask ourselves as we work through uh, sort of the narrative as Luke gives it to us. But in order to understand that, we need to capture the setting, which we get in verse 1. After saying all these things, or after he'd finished all his sayings, he entered Capernaum. A centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So we get some important setting markers here by Luke. We're told that Jesus moves from where he was in, in teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Beatitudes, and he transfers himself and, no, and likely all of his followers who were following him around to the city of Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum became Jesus' sort of adopted home during his Galilean ministry. It was sort of his home base out of which he operated his ministry in the area. It was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Just show you a map in case you're not fresh on your Middle Eastern geography. Sea of Galilee, you see there, Capernaum is up there, sort of the northwest point around the sea. If you were to, to see a sort of a, an aerial photo of what that area looks like around the Sea of Galilee, you can see to the left, the Mount of Beatitudes is, is there, not too far from Tabga. And he just moves a, a, a relatively short walk over to Capernaum, which is a seaside town right on the water by the Sea of Galilee there. It's the largest of, of many, of the many cities that are around that, that lake called the Sea of Galilee. It's an important city. It was an economic center in its day. It was near a major trade route. It was a very, very wealthy city. There were a lot of people there, and there was a lot of money there. It also was home to several of the apostles. And it's here that Jesus goes, and it's here that he sort of launches his, his public ministry in and out of this town of Capernaum. And we're told that, that there's a situation that he runs into when he gets into Capernaum. There's a, a particular centurion who's in this town who has a servant who's dying. And not only that, he's a valuable, highly valued servant to him. 
Now, what's a centurion? A centurion is a Roman officer, a Roman army officer who was responsible for leading 100 men. Thus the name centurion, right? It comes in the name. Centurions were sort of the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, if you were to think of how all this is organized, the Roman legion was about 6,000 soldiers, and those were broken down into 10 cohorts of about 600 men. And so for every 100 of those men in a cohort, there was a centurion who was responsible for the leadership of those 100 men. So in any particular legion of 6,000 people, there's 60 centurions, if my Thanksgiving weekend math is right. A centurion uh, is sort of the highest rank attainable by an ordinary soldier in the day. If you're an ordinary soldier, that's about as high as you could progress. There were political factors and other things that were involved in, in sort of promoting higher than centurion. But it was a very prestigious position, and it was a highly paid position. Unlike what sort of the context in which you and I live, where people who are in the military serve and are paid, but likely the most wealthy people in the nation are not people who are in the military. But in this day, the first century, centurions were extremely wealthy people. They made very, very good money. As far as the New Testament goes, there's about six centurions that are mentioned. At least two of them seem to be people who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe even more. If you're trying to understand what these people are, sort of who they are and what they're about, a Roman historian by the name of Polybius writes this. He says, they're not so much venturesome daredevils as natural leaders of a steady and sedate spirit. Not so much men who will initiate attacks and open the battle, as men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their post. You rose to the rank of centurion by proving yourself on the field. Not just anybody was a centurion. These were hardened warriors, people who understood battle, who understood life and who understood death, who understood what it was to take life and to see death. This particular centurion has got a problem, though we're told that he's got a servant who's sick and at the point of death. And you can imagine the scene. This servant has likely been sick for some time. Now, the, the, the indication is that he's been suffering for quite a while, and he's been declining for some time. And you can imagine that, that this centurion and those in his household have done everything that they can do that was humanly possible to try and help this particular servant. They've exhausted every known option up to this point to no avail. They've gone to whatever doctors are available, and it hasn't helped. They've given him whatever home remedies they can think of, and it hasn't helped. He's getting worse by the day, and at this point, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, he's at the point of death. It could in, it literally come at any moment. Centurions, as I mentioned, are tough, strong leaders. But their strength and their leadership skill and their power and their position and their wealth cannot do a single thing to stave off death. That's a harsh reality that centurions lived with, and it's a harsh reality that men and women still live with today. Death is, in a very real sense, the great equalizer, isn't it? It comes to all men, and it comes to all women. 
at some point in time. The rich will die and the poor will die. The powerful will die and the weak will die. The popular will die and the anonymous will die. One day death comes for us all. One day every single one of us will be in the same condition as this servant. Our bodies are going to fail. There's going to come a time when something's going to happen that no doctor can fix, that no home remedy can take care of. And the people who love us will be just like this centurion and the people around this servant. They'll do everything in their power to help us get better and they'll grieve as we decline. One day we'll die. This terrestrial Toyota is going to pull over to the curb of life and the engine's going to sputter its last sputter. If you understand what I'm saying. And there's no mechanic that's going to be able to fix us. And everyone we know and love will be utterly helpless to do anything about it but grieve. If you've ever watched somebody that you love die, then you understand this scenario. If you've ever watched somebody that you know and love begin to fade from this earth into eternity, you understand this scenario. This is what's taking place. You know the helplessness. You know the grief. You know the pain. And this centurion and this household are right in that moment. But there's something very different, it seems, about this particular centurion and this particular servant and their relationship because we're told that this servant was highly valued by him. This is an incredibly unusual statement to have a a centurion who has a slave, which is the word used, the ESV translates servant here, who's highly valued. There's a, a unique relationship between this particular centurion and his servant. Slave owners at the time didn't normally care about their slaves. Slaves were viewed as, 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 as sort of objects to be owned. There was typically no emotional attachment to your servant or to your slave. A slave was simply a person that was purchased and owned by his, his or her master. They were completely subject to the will of their master. They were completely at the mercy and control of their owner. They were typically not highly valued. They were seen as subhuman mere objects to be used Aristotle the writer describes a slave as a a living tool like your hammer or your shovel but alive Roman writer Varro says this the only difference between a slave an animal and a cart was that the slave talked it gives you a little taste for the value of slaves and how slaves were typically treated. It's the opposite of being highly valued. They were seen as commodities that could be, that could be had or lost. They were only valuable to the degree that they, uh, that they sort of contributed something to the household. And the moment they couldn't contribute anymore, they're thrown out like garbage. But not this slave. Not this slave and not this centurion. There's something about this statement that reflects to us something that's going on that's different in the heart of the centurion. He loves this particular slave. He's highly valued. Later on, he uses a different word to describe him. It's a word that's often used for children. This this slave is, is like a family member for him. This slave is much more than a mere tool. He genuinely cares about him. And as we're gonna see, he goes to great lengths to get him help. We'll see that that's because he's a man of faith. 
And men of faith don't treat other men, regardless of their status, like trash. This man's faith is going to emerge to us as amazing. And we're going to see here in verse 3 really the first reason why his faith is amazing. His faith is amazing because it's placed in the right object. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, we're not told how the centurion has heard about Jesus. We don't know what he knows. We don't know how he's told. We don't know the extent to which he's encountered Jesus or that he's heard things about Jesus. Whatever he heard, he heard enough to believe that Jesus has the power to heal. Is that fair to say? He, he, he had enough to know that he believes Jesus can do something about this situation. He knew enough that, that, that he believes Jesus could do what nobody else can do. He, believe, he has enough information to know and to believe that Jesus has power somehow over sickness and death. And so he reaches out to Jesus and he sends Jewish elders to sort of fetch him for help. Why does he do this? Well, there's all sorts of barriers in this process. It may seem like a simple thing to you and me to say, well, you hear about a healer, you go send somebody to get help. But in between the centurion and Jesus and the help that he needs are a ton of barriers. There's social barriers, there's religious barriers, there's all kinds of barriers. There's a social racial barrier that's almost insurmountable. This particular centurion is a Roman, he's not a Jew. Jesus, on the other hand, is what? He's a Jew. If you know anything about this time in history, Jews and Gentiles did not care for one another. And that's an understatement. In fact, they quite frequently hated one another. Jews saw Romans as godless pagans, and Jews saw themselves as God's chosen people as superior, and they viewed Romans as being outside of the circle of God's choosing and just godless pagans who were meant only for destruction. Romans, on the other hand, saw Jews as filthy and beneath them. There was incredible racial strife, incredible racial barriers for this Roman to seek out this Jew to help him. It's not just that, though. There's a religious barrier as well. He's a Roman Gentile. It's not just that he's Roman racially, but religiously he's a Gentile. He's a godless Gentile. And he's reaching out to a Jewish rabbi for help. Now, this is a problem because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and this centurion is not particularly religious. He doesn't study the Old Testament. He doesn't worship at the temple. He was seen by all the Jews around him as a religiously defiled man. Why would a a faithful Jewish rabbi entertain a request from a godless Roman Gentile. Well, this centurion is sensitive to the barriers, and, and he, he knows in his mind that this is a long shot, so he sends Jewish elders to Jesus to go and sort of plead his case. Despite all the barriers, he believes Jesus is his only hope, and it's worth a try even if it's a long shot. It seems obvious here, but we should point out, importantly, that the object of this man's faith is Jesus. His faith is in no one else. 
His faith is in Jesus. He knows that Jesus Christ is his only hope. He may not be a religious man. He may not know the Old Testament. He may not be uh, one who's, who's uh, sort of uh, uh, familiar with or involved regularly in Jewish worship. But he knows enough to know uh, that Jesus is his only hope. That if there's anyone walking the earth that can do anything about his servant's illness, it's Jesus Christ, this Jewish rabbi. His faith is in Jesus. Every person who walks the earth, at least this is my contention, is a person of faith. Every person exercises faith on a regular basis. You know this just from living life. You woke up this morning, you, you, you got yourself ready, and you went outside and you, most of you got in an automobile and you pushed a button or you turned a key, and miraculously, you don't know how, you don't understand how it all works, the engine turned on, right? You pushed a gas pedal and somehow your car started moving and you steered it to the church parking lot. There's a lot of things you probably don't understand or don't know in that process that you just trust that, that when you do certain things, they're going to happen. Now, there are some people in the room who understand those things and those are not an act of faith. I know nothing about an automobile. except Where to put the gas in. Where to stick the key if there's a key. Everything else is a pure act of faith on my part in driving from point A to point B. But if that isn't sufficient, I, if you fly on an airplane, I flew just a week ago. Anytime you get on an airplane and you fly, that's an act of faith. You have faith, right? Like you're getting, you're putting yourself in a hollow metal tube, right, that has two jet engines on either side that at somebody's request and activity is going to launch itself down a runway at an ungodly speed and at some point is going to leave the runway and go up into the air and take you to what 15 20,000 feet and fly you to a destination and it's going to do the same thing in reverse when you come down and somehow that works and you get safely to the other place I have no idea how any of that works no idea how a hollow metal tube can do that and I can still breathe all the way there. It's an act of faith. We have acts of faith all the time. We, we trust with our trust in things that we don't know and that we don't understand all the time. We, we trust in things. We trust in people all the time. When it comes to matter of belief and it comes to matter of sort of how do we understand the world around us and how do we think things work, everybody exercises faith in that realm too. Even the most godless atheist exercises faith. It's been a number of years ago that I was able to participate in a, it's called a debate, but it wasn't really a debate at the College of Charleston. It was more like a panel conversation or something. The, the theme of that thing was, was the, the role of faith in, in politics. I don't, I don't know how I got roped into that, but I was there at the College of Charleston, and there was a, an atheist math professor and, uh, that was there as well, and there was a, a, another, another uh, minister from a, uh, one of the, the historic downtown churches, a, a, a theologically liberal um, minister. And there were the three of us, and the crowd was largely uh, College, of, College of Charleston students and, and people from, from church that I coerced to go just in case uh, my life was threatened for saying something foolish or whatever. I could get out safely, hopefully. But it was an interesting, it was an interesting encounter for me because as we began to, to have this conversation, 
the issue of faith came up, and I made this contention that everybody is a person of faith. And if, if you had been there, you would have seen that particular college professor, that math professor, that just, that just hit him as all sorts of wrong. He absolutely was not willing to admit that he was a person of faith. He was trying to cast our entire conversation as, a, as though it was a conversation about faith versus reason. And he was casting me as a person of faith, as in himself, as a person of reason. But that was nonsense. It was absolutely nonsense. As we began to talk about beliefs and what we actually thought and what we actually believed about things, it was very easy to expose that not only was he not a, just a person of reason, he was a person of faith. He believed in evolution. He believed in Big Bang Theory. That was his, his theology of beginnings. He believed that something came out of nothing and that everything that is somehow has evolved out of nothingness. He can't prove that. He can't do any experiment in any kind, of a, any kind of, a, of a lab anywhere that can empirically show that something can come from nothing. And he can't show that in a, in a macro sense that everything that is can come out of a single cell. There's no way that those things can be proved by reason or science. They're believed by faith. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. But I still hold the truth. Everybody is a person of faith. The question isn't, are you a person of faith? The question is, what is the object of your faith? What is your faith in? That's the question that really matters. The question is, what is your faith in? Who or what is the object of your faith? If, if, if science is the object of your faith, then your faith is, 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 is a foolish faith. Because science is always changing. It's not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who never changes, then your faith is founded on a rock. The key to faith is not, is not, the key to faith isn't its volume, it's its object. It's not how much faith you can gen up in your life, it's in whom or what do you place your faith. That's the issue. Another way you could say it is this, faith is determined by the value and the trustworthiness of its object, right? If I had two chairs up here, one made out of wood on this side and one made out of, out of paper mache or cardboard on this side, and I asked you to come sit in a chair of your choosing, which are you going to choose? You're going to choose, well, unless you're glutton for pain, you're going to choose the one made out of wood. Why? Because in your judgment, it's more trustworthy to put your faith in, right? It's more likely to hold you up. It wouldn't matter how much faith you could gin up over the paper cardboard chair. It's still a paper cardboard chair. You can convince yourself to have all sorts of faith in that, but the moment you put your bottom in it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to hit the floor. It's not volume. It's the object, the trustworthiness of the object. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This particular centurion has amazing faith, first and foremost, most because his faith isn't in people, it isn't in impersonal forces. His faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of God flowing through him. He later calls him Lord. He tells us, 
gives us a sense that he knows who Jesus is. More than just a great teacher, more than just a good rabbi, more than just a good example, he's the Lord who's deserving of faith. What's the object of your faith? What is it that you're counting on to get you through? What is it that you look to when life gets hard? What is it that you're counting on to get you through your life? What is it that you're counting on to save your marriage, to change your finances? What is it that you're counting on when sickness finds its way into your body? What is it that that you're counting on to pull you out of your depression, to give your life meaning, to give your life purpose, to help you when you're desperate? Where is your faith? What is the object of your faith? To whom or to what do you look? When you find yourself in this slave's position, and your life is ebbing away. What are you counting on to get you into heaven? Jesus Christ is the only faith, faith in him, that's sufficient for any of those things. And this centurion knows that. He knows that. But beyond that, we see that his faith is not just in Jesus, but it's humble and it's selfless. And that second piece we catch... When they get to Jesus, that is the elders that he sends, they plead with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. Now that's fascinating. This centurion in, 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 in sort of a, uh, endeared himself to many of the Jewish leaders and so they, they're able to go on his behalf to speak to Jesus even though he's a non-religious Gentile even though he's a non-Jewish Roman they go on his behalf and they make a pitch for Jesus to come help him and their sales pitch to Jesus is quite simply this Jesus, you should come help this man this Roman centurion because he's worthy of your help that's their argument And their argument is based on really two premises, two reasons why this centurion is worthy of Jesus' help. Number one, they say he loves our nation. Number two, he built us our synagogue. Jesus, you need to do this guy a solid favor. He is absolutely worthy of you stopping what you're doing and going to help him because unlike most Roman soldiers, he loves the Israelites. This centurion is different. He loves and respects the Jews. He does good things for us. He's a, he's a God-fearing man. Not only is he a God-fearing man, but he's, he's used his considerable wealth to help us to build our synagogue. Centurions, as I mentioned, are well-paid and generally wealthy. And this particular one is singularly credited here for building the synagogue. So the bottom line base of the pitch is this. Jesus, this is a good, God-fearing man who's made significant contributions to the church, if you will. He's worthy of your help. Now, while both of these things may be true, he is a God-fearing man, and he has made significant contributions to the building of the synagogue. Here's a fact that you and I need to understand that the Jewish elders completely missed. Neither of those things makes him worthy of Jesus' help. Neither one. But because these men are so entrenched in a works righteousness system of religion, they're thinking everything in terms of merit. He's a good man. He lives a clean life. He does good things. He's obviously earned God's favor. He's deserving of God's favor. And people today still think like that. They think good people who do good things and contribute to good causes deserve to have good things happen to them. 
Good people who do good things and give to the church deserve God's favor. They deserve to get into heaven. They deserve good things, not bad things to happen. Bottom line, here's the pitch. Jesus, you need to go help him. He deserves it because he's a good man. He's done good to our people. He's been generous in giving to the synagogue. And this pitch shows how far away even the religious leaders of Israel are from understanding the gospel. They have no clue what the gospel that Jesus has been preaching is all about. They're so trapped in their merits-based system. God does not operate that way. That's never been how God operates, and it's still not how he operates. The Bible declares that nobody deserves God's favor. Did you hear that this morning? Nobody deserves God's favor. Nobody deserves it. Not one living, breathing human being deserves the favor of God. If we were going to earn God's favor by our works and by our behavior, the standard is very clear. The standard is perfect holiness. That's what we'd have to achieve to earn and deserve and be worthy of his favor. But the Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only thing that our good works and the rest of our works have earned us is eternal hell. Because the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. Listen, you need to understand something. If God ever helps you, if God ever blesses you, if God ever does good things for you, you need to know one thing for sure. It's not because you're worthy, and it's not because you deserve it. It's because he's a God who's merciful and gracious and kind to those who don't deserve his mercy and his grace. And the religious leaders totally don't get it. They miss that whole piece. But the centurion gets it. You read the story, it tells us that the centurion, while they were getting close to the house, sends another delegation. He's had time to think about this now, and he's heard that Jesus is now on the way. And he sends another delegation, and he says to them, he says to, to Jesus, or the delegation says to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come out to you. What the religious leaders can't see, this particular Roman centurion gets pretty clearly. He looks at himself, and he looks at Jesus, and he understands somehow Jesus' sinless perfection, and he looks at himself, and he sees in the mirror nothing but pure unworthiness. He sees that he's unworthy of Jesus' help. He sees that he is unworthy of Jesus' miracle-working power. He's even unworthy of Jesus' presence. He says, Jesus, don't, don't come any further. I am not a man who's worthy of having you in my home. In the world's eyes and by the world's value system, this is Nurian. He's somebody. He's somebody. He has power to command people. He has wealth to make people enviable. He has social status that buys him favors. But in comparison to the holy perfection of Jesus Christ, he knows he is not worthy. He's not worthy. He doesn't even come close. The religious leaders say he's a good man who does good things. He contributes to good causes. He looks at his own self and he sees himself as being a man who has not done good things and does not deserve the Lord's favor. He sees himself as a sinner who falls short. And the gulf between him and Jesus is so far 
that he doesn't deserve to even be in his presence. In his eyes, this wasn't about merit. It was about grace. It was about grace. His only hope was that Jesus would be gracious and heal his servant in spite of him, not because of him. He had a humble, selfless faith. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes him, the proud, but he gives grace to him, the humble. Well, this man's faith is great because it's humble and it's selfless and because it's in Jesus. And finally, this faith is amazing because it comprehends both Jesus' power and authority. This last thing that he says is phenomenal. He says, Jesus, just say the word and let my servant be healed. I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's an amazing thing for for this man to say to Jesus. He speaks his own language. He speaks the language that he understands, the language of battle and the language of the military that he served in his whole life. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, here's the reality. I am a man who understands power and authority. I'm a man who possesses both power and authority in my little world. I'm a centurion. I give orders to people, and they jump when I give them orders. I tell them to go and they immediately go. I tell them to come and they come. I tell them to go do something and they immediately do it because I have the power and the authority to command it and they respond to my command. He describes himself as a person who is under authority and in authority. So he understands that he has power and authority, but his power and authority is delegated. That is to say that when he tells people to do something, they do it not just because he is who he says he is, because he's a centurion, but because he has somebody above him. And that person has somebody above them. And that line, that chain of authority, if you will, goes all the way up to to Caesar. So when he speaks, it's as though Caesar is speaking. And so people act. And he says that to Jesus for a purpose. Because he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I see in you that same kind of power and authority. The difference is yours isn't derived from a man. Yours is from God. All you have to do is speak, and it'll happen. You just say the word, and the disease will be gone. Because power recognizes power, and authority recognizes authority. Jesus, you speak with the power and authority of God himself. All you have to do is say it, and it will be. You don't have to come see him. You don't have to come touch him. You don't have to come administer any medications you don't have to come do anything all you have to do is speak and your authority will make it happen sickness, disease, death at your word they go that's remarkable faith that's amazing faith amazing all you have to do Jesus is say the word and it's going to happen is you your authority is not like mine it's not derived from men it's, it's the authority and power of God now this centurion doesn't understand the intricacies of the doctrine of the trinity but he knows enough to know that Jesus speaks and acts with the authority and the power of God himself when Jesus hears this he says Lord Luke tells us he marveled at him. 
And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is blown away by this. What is he blown away by? It's not just the fact that it's faith. He's blown away by that this kind of a depth and richness of faith is coming from a Gentile Roman centurion. Up to this point, his entire ministry has been primarily to Jews. He's been teaching Jews over and over and over again. He's gone in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue. He's taught out by the roadside, crowds and crowds of Jews. He's taught the gospel. He's taught the truth. He's taught them what faith looks like over and over and over again. He's pointed to himself as the Messiah over and over and over again. And yet they continue to stumble and trip and fall. He's, he, he's shown miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And they still are having trouble grasping who he is they had every single advantage the Jews had Abraham they had the entire Old Testament they had Moses they had David they had the prophets they had worship they had the whole thing that goes on at the temple all of that was pointing to the Messiah who was to come and here was the Messiah right in front of them and they struggled to believe and here bebops along a Roman pagan centurion who has none of those advantages. He didn't grow up with his daddy bouncing him on his knee, telling him stories of Abraham and Moses. He didn't have the advantage of going to the temple and hearing the preached word of the Old Testament. He didn't have the advantage of growing up in a household where he saw people of faith, acting in faith and trusting in God. Now he's a pagan man from a pagan home who had none of that. And yet when he looked at Jesus Christ, he saw him for who he was. And he had the kind of faith that says, I'm nobody and he's somebody. He has authority that comes from God. All he's got to do is speak, and this will take place. The disciples aren't even there at this point. And yet this Roman centurion is. And Jesus is astonished. His statement is really a statement of judgment on Israel as much as it is a commendation on this man. But it's a statement that's incredibly significant. By the way, you read the end of the story, what happens? If you read Matthew's account, he tells us at that very moment, the servant is healed. He's healed. Disease is gone. One minute, he's about to die. The next minute, he's perfectly healthy. What are we to take from all this? What does it matter to us, right? Why, why, why is this man's faith and this narrative make any difference to us? I think there are a few things that we need to just sort of begin to grasp as we think through this and conclude it. Jesus Christ is the only true object of saving faith. We get that in the story, right? We see that all throughout the New Testament. There's salvation found in nobody else. Jesus said to him in John 4, 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except how? Through me. There's no other way to be saved than through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other true object for faith. You can put your faith in anything you want to in your life. You have the freedom to do that. But if your faith is in anything other than Jesus Christ, then you need to know your soul is in eternal peril. And if you die in that state, you will go to an eternal hell. That the only hope you have is the only hope that dying servant has, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your only hope in this moment, and he's your only hope beyond this life. But a second piece we need to understand is Jesus always responds to those 
who reach out to him in humble faith. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your social standing. It doesn't matter your, your wealth or lack thereof. It doesn't matter your religious background. To anyone who comes to him in humble, selfless faith, repenting of their sin and asking for his help, he will respond. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a church or you didn't. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much sin you've committed in your life. If you'll confess your sin and come to the Lord Jesus, ask him to forgive you and submit your life to him, he will not turn you away. Ever. Ever. The gospel's open to anybody from anywhere. There's no race that has an advantage. There's no nationality that has an advantage. There's no social status that has an advantage. Whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you're from, salvation is open to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his arms are wide open for you. Just place your faith in him. Put your trust in him. And he'll save you. He'll eternally secure your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are amazing. You are God incarnate. You are God come in human flesh. And the story's been told over and over and over, generation after generation after generation, and still there are millions who don't believe they place their faith in someone else or something else statistics tell us in a room this size there are people even here who haven't placed their faith and trust in you I pray that in this moment Lord that their eyes would be opened that you would implant in their heart a faith like this Roman centurion's that they would see you for who you are and themselves for who they are and they be drawn to you for salvation you are gracious and you are merciful in giving us what we do not deserve and this morning we celebrate your mercy and we celebrate your grace because without it we'd all be lost eternally So as we conclude our time of worship together this morning, Lord, draw us by your Holy Spirit to respond as we need to, each individually, for we pray it in your holy name.